Hello, welcome to FiresideFileMaker.com, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Rashad. Hi, my name is John Mark Osborne, and welcome to the Fireside FileMaker podcast. And I'm Michael Rashad. This is rather an interesting podcast because John Mark and I have been discussing doing a podcast on vertical market solutions. And John has been desperately trying to land the right guest and the right guest doesn't want to be landed. So we suddenly realized that I had done two vertical market solutions and our regular and returning guest, Mark LaRochelle from Productive Computing has a vertical market solutions. So John is going to interview us on the experience of going vertical. And Mark LaRochelle is here. Introduce yourself, Mark. Say hi. Hey, everybody. Glad to be back on another regular podcast here. Vertical markets, uh, one of my favorite topics. Wow. Okay, good. Yeah, I think it's a, a a good topic for a lot of people or people are considering getting into vertical market solutions, which you can be very successful with them in the FileMaker market. But we're going to talk about the ins and outs and then get into some case studies and things like that. But let's start off generally. I'm going to ask both Michael and Mark because they have the most experience. I've never actually built a vertical market solution. I've got some ideas about how it should be done, but they have the real experience. So I'm going to ask them, what is a vertical market solution? What is a horizontal market solution? And really, what's the difference between the two? Okay, well, let's talk about a horizontal market solution, because I have absolutely no idea what that is, unless you're talking about programming while lying down. But a vertical market solution is, at least it has been in my experience, is a solution that you develop for a client within a niche market, and then you take that solution and you develop it as a vertical solution, a new market to everybody else within that niche. What do you think, Mark? Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a good example of what a vertical market is. Yeah, it's one solution in a particular industry. And then you're, you become the expert of how to do things in that industry and the software demonstrates that and allows people in that industry to have you know, a solution that solves the problems for what would typically be seen in that industry. And, you know, the the brother to that or the sister to that is, is something called horizontal market software, which isn't talked about as much, but it's something we're all very familiar with it. And I have sort of a dictionary definition of that. Uh, in computer software, horizontal market software is application software that is useful for a wide range of industries. This is the opposite of vertical market software, which has a scope of usefulness limited to a few industries. So an example would be horizontal market software is like productivity software, um, word processors, web browsers, spreadsheets, applications, generic bookkeeping applications. And I'd take it a step further that you could say, if you have a generic CRM, uh, something that would handle sales and customers that could serve multiple industries, then that would also be an example of horizontal market software. So. That's just some dictionary definitions there, but it really does define the different offerings that people can make today and both have their advantages and disadvantages. Yeah, interesting. So let me ask you guys another question, you know, get in some general information. Uh, what are some of the advantages of using FileMaker as a platform to support such verticals? Do you guys have any uh, comments on that? Some bullet points? Well, absolutely. 
I mean, as as we all know, and as most of our listeners know, FileMaker is the fastest RAID rapid application development environment there is, which means that you can develop a solution in a fraction of the time that it would take using other platforms and programs. That results in a lower cost, and it's also the most flexible. So any vertical market solution that you develop uh, will require extensive customization for each customer. There is no such thing as this solution is going to fit everybody. And if you're going to market it successfully as a vertical, you've got to be willing to add features and functionality as those requirements are listed. And that's why FileMaker is perhaps the best possible tool for you, for doing vertical market solutions, in my opinion. Yeah, and I, I would extend that to say it's the most flexible because of its many deployment options and its capability to be the master juggler of all kinds of data. So FileMaker is unique because it can be deployed either on Windows, Mac, traditional computers, which in some verticals is a really important aspect of deployment. They don't necessarily want to be on the web. They don't necessarily want to be public facing in any way, shape, or form. They want something very proprietary that sits on a computer that way. Then on the same token, you have the option of deploying a full fleet featured app using FileMaker Go, at least on iOS and soon to be Android, according to Claris. So that means now I can have a native mobile app, which is, again, something that some industries absolutely demand in order for them to succeed. They have to have a mobile app. It can't just be some web browser on a mobile device. It has to be a full featured app. So that gives us that option. Well, at the same token, we can program custom web publishing. To do anything we can imagine on the web can be incorporated and integrated into a FileMaker platform solution. And then you have other things like, well, what if we needed to talk to other major databases such as Oracle or Microsoft SQL? We have options to do direct connect to that as well. And in one of the case studies we'll be talking about, they do exactly that to perform some of their vertical market magic. So I think, I think the key here is, Michael said it well, this customization options, which are really important to a lot of verticals. but Platform flexibility and deployment, there's almost no amount of solutions that you could provide a particular vertical market. So yeah, almost if you can dream it, FileMaker can get you there. Now, there's been a slight uh, prop, or well, how do I put this? There's been a, a, a chink in the armor of the flexibility of FileMaker in that in FileMaker 19, I've finally removed the runtime engine. And they really don't have something that does the same thing. They have some alternatives, but they really don't have anything. And that's, uh, that's all. Uh, I want to get your guys' viewpoint on that. I mean, how important was runtime to vertical market solutions? I know a lot of people are having issues, um, but did you guys have any issues with that? Was it a big problem for you? Well, let me just answer that by saying that I did two vertical market solutions, both of which used the runtime engine to generate um, the solutions to market. And for the majority of those cases, they were a single user system. They were a small business, one or two men people, and they didn't need to connect. They didn't need to share, have all the networking connections. They didn't need anything other than a single solution. However, I will say that I don't think them deprecating the runtime really has any effect. Now, sure, there is licensing issues and costs of licensing FileMaker software, 
But as a vertical market developer, I'm going to absorb those costs in the price that I charge. So it doesn't mean that the customer has to go out and buy FileMaker. I'm going to provide them with that. So for all intents and purposes, yeah, I know a lot of people are crying the blues, but I don't think it's that important. Interesting. Really, really good points because uh, you're saying that basically you're just going to switch them over to regular FileMaker. Yeah. Thoughts, Mark? Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, there's nothing functionality, there's nothing in the functionality of a runtime per se that exceeds or surpasses anything we can't, that we can already do in pro. In fact, it has a lot more limiting features, especially in the areas of networking. But for some verticals, they were dependent on that paradigm. They were actually dependent, their licensing model and their entire construct was dependent on runtimes working the way they did, being license free. Um, and you know, some verticals have come up with clever ways to get around the networking, you know, where they would use, let's say a combination of infrastructure and plugins to import and export data to the web, but still use a runtime as a front end, you know? So, uh, interesting ways to go about it, not necessarily uh, compliant with the licensing or the spirit of what the runtime was supposed to be or is. Um, but anyway, all of that has been removed now. So if you are going to uh, consider your deployment model, you have to also consider licensing with that. In fact, I was just talking to a vertical a market uh, person a couple days ago, and they really do have to consider, you know, do I do concurrency? Do I do user-based modeling? Because uh, it really does change the price on how, you, how you're going to handle that. So I'm sure we'll talk about that later in the podcast. But um, I agree with Michael that there's nothing functionality in the function side of things that would prevent you know, would absolutely need a runtime to get away with a certain functionality. It's all about licensing. Yeah, I find it kind of interesting. I was just, just popped into my head. Uh, I was talking to somebody who has uh, a vertical market solution. I believe he was in Germany. And I was talking to him via email. And I just thought it was interesting that I, I said, hey, did you know, I want to make sure you knew that the runtime had been, you know, removed from FileMaker 19. He's all, what, what? And I'm, I'm like, well, they've been at least for five or six versions, maybe at least five or six years, been telling people publicly that they're going to remove it. And, uh, you know, it, hopefully, um, you know, people aren't hearing this for the first time because, you know, it, you, you do have to adjust. It, it's not that there's not great solutions out there. You know, just use FileMaker instead. But, you know, we want to make sure everybody knows that the runtime, you can use it still in FileMaker 18 and any version before. If you go to FileMaker 19, you can't make a runtime. The other disadvantage of the runtime, especially on the Windows environment, was that that package was huge. I mean, it was close to 200 megabytes of, you know, all the different files and everything. So, it wasn't that easy to deploy as a solution, whereas if you're just using FileMaker, it's a very easy deployment. Yeah, you just download it and install, and uh, you know it's pretty easy, pretty straightforward from any software developer. Yeah, yeah. The difference is that today's FileMaker Pro application actually has an installer that's meant to install an application. The runtime never did. So if you were going to make a professional installation in a vertical market situation, you'd have to roll your own installer system to install the runtime if you wanted it done a certain way. So yeah, it's actually a lot more work doing it that way. That's true. That's true. So um, Michael, 
let's let me ask you how you got involved. I know you mentioned that you've done two vertical market solutions. We're going to talk about those later and get more detail. But how did you get involved with a mar- vertical market solution? It, I find it interesting to find out how it how it knocked on your door. Did you suggest it, or how how that all happened? No, it, this is a very funny story, and and in the process, I'm going to have to talk about the first solution because this is without. I can't tell you the story without discussing the solution. Anyway, back in, uh, I, I think I think it was 98 or early 99, I was back in the UK and I was having lunch with my oldest friend and but closest friend. And Mark, and at that time, owned a company called MacLine, which was the largest mail-order Mac software house in the UK. And... He and I had met when he was first starting the business and we just hit it off and become very close friends and we were having lunch. And he said to me, he said, I got a problem. And I went, tell me. He said, my my cousin in London owns an ISP. You know what an ISP is? And I went, no. He said, an internet service provider. Oh yeah, okay. He says, We've got about 1,300 customers. And by the way, I own 25% of it. So we've got about 1,300 customers. And recurring billing is an absolute nightmare for us. And we had hired a company to come in and write us a solution. And after six months of not delivering anything, they finally told us that they weren't even going to start work on it until we'd paid them the full amount up front. And I said, well, Mark, tell them to... I was very vulgar, so I won't repeat it. I said, I can build you a solution to do this. He said, well, how long will it take you? I said, "Eh, two, three days. So I did this. I gave them, did a very crude and dirty solution and said, Mark, here you are. Just go ahead and use it. And by the way, FileMaker 3, I think it was, had just come out with the relational engine. And I said, I need to learn this new software. So I'm going to build the solution for your business using the software to learn it and have a real case study. Anyway, a month later, I had done that and I delivered it to him. And the next morning, he calls me up very exciting. He says, Mike, this is fantastic, unbelievable, incredible. You've got to market it. And I went, what do you mean market it? And he went, you've got to sell it to all the other ISPs. And I went, yeah, sure, no thanks. And literally blew him off. And I'd hung up the phone and I picked up the Las Vegas Business Press and opened it up. And it opened to a page talking about the ISPs in Las Vegas. Full feature article on them. There were 10 of them at the time and it gave them names and phone numbers and addresses of all of them. And I thought, well, I do believe in coincidence and opportunity. So I wrote and mailed a letter to all of the 10 saying, Dear Sirs, I've just returned from the UK where I've developed a solution for an ISP in London. It occurs to me that you might have some or all of the same problems they have. If you'd like to see it, give me a call. Anyway, they went out that afternoon and the following morning I had two phone calls out of the 10 from two ISPs who I went down and saw and both of them bought a copy on the spot for $1,000 each. And that was how I got started. It's almost like destiny shoved you into vertical market solutions, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the corollary 
the, the end result of that story was that I, at the time, there were 16,000 ISPs worldwide with just over 4,000 in the US. Now, obviously, that whole market has shrunk and consolidated. But during the time that I was marketing the solution, I ended up with 5% of that entire market in the US, which was quite a lot. Yeah, you don't have to grab the entire market to make uh, you know, a decent return on your money. You can get a small percentage of a large market and do quite well. Yeah, and I think this is one of the, the points that needs to be made. Um, you don't have to get a very big percentage of a market to make it very worthwhile. And the other point is you don't have to give it away either. So, Mark, same question to you. Uh, can you describe how you got involved with mer vertical markets software? Well, uh, we first stumbled upon the idea of vertical market software and the power that it has. When we started looking at a software company you guys all might remember called Happy Software. And why we know Happy Software is not because of their vertical market, but because they were the original creators of the connector that allowed you to talk between FileMaker and QuickBooks. Theirs was called um, FileBooks Link. So we were also building plugins at the time, and we built a competing product to that, a plugin called FMBooks Connector. So in talking with Happy Software, um, we ended up buying their code and incorporating their code in our plugin, essentially, you know, um, expanding our market. And in doing that, we learned a lot about Happy Software and what they did. And they have what I would consider one of the most successful stories about vertical market software there is. And they had software that performs uh, management for low-income housing for, for the government. And their software was, uh, you know, very robust in what it did and used in a lot of places. And um, they've since sold it to another company. Uh, and it's just nothing but a success story from top to bottom. And they were one of the first real successful vertical markets that I was aware of using FileMaker as the platform. So that's really where I got my introduction. But along the way, when you end up owning a hosting company and offer those services, you find that you meet a lot of people who have vertical markets who want to do everything except the hosting. That's the part they feel they don't have the expertise in. They don't really want to bother with it. So they'd use us for hosting. We'd get to meet these business owners and understand their software and the different ways they deployed it in their customers. So it became really intriguing. Later, that evolved in having our own software solution, which I'll talk about when we get to that case study. Uh, so now we actually have you know, one of one of those stories became our own in a sense, but that's essentially the industry thrust us into it. And it all started because of our connection to QuickBooks. That's really what started our whole understanding of what vertical markets are and their impact. I, I think if we take one thing from what both Michael and Mark said is you have to be available and willing and receptive to different types of business models. I mean, everybody in the FileMaker market knows about you know, doing development, custom development. But vertical market solutions are always a little bit of a mystery because you have to get a solution that's going to be applicable to a wide audience in a niche market. Uh, 
but you have to be open. I mean, Michael wasn't open to it, but luckily, you know, fate had it and, and, you know, it was a good friend of his and, and uh, he, you know, pursued it and it was, it worked out really well for him. So I think that uh, hopefully what we can accomplish here is, is let everybody know that how to identify a vertical market solution and some of the things you need to do that you may not be aware of. And so when we go through these case studies, we're all going to ask each other questions about this stuff. And, and hopefully, we, uh, I think you're ready, Mark, to talk about uh, your first case study. So the first case study is an application called Oz. And, you know, that's a take from the famous Wizard of Oz, the great and powerful Oz. Wait, wait, I thought it was about and me. This partic- <laughs> they called me <laughs> right, Oz when I was right. in high school. No kidding. Yeah, there was also a show on HBO, John, called Oz, and it was about a high-security criminal uh, jail, and that you wouldn't want to be in there. I, I'm not associated with that at all. Just the wizard guy. And not, and not Ozzy Osbourne either. <laughs> Just the wizard, the good stuff. <laughs> right. Well, you know, when you have a name like Osbourne, that's, gonna, that's bound to happen, right? So... Um, so this particular software is accommodates venue management, entertainment booking, event planning, and catering. Essentially, it can handle anything that has an event that needs to be coordinated. This particular software is good for that. And what interests me most about some of these solutions, this one included, is, is the passion and the work ethic and the dedication the owners have to the solution. I come from the music industry, the music Uh, I used to work for National Association of Music Merchants. And what we would often find is that people who opened a music store tended to be musicians first and didn't know much about business. And they ended up, in a lot of cases, going out of business because they ran their music store from the passion and the heart of music making and the love of music rather than running it like a business. And what I see in a lot of these verticals um, some are more successful than others, but at the end of the day, people had passion around a particular topic. And in most cases, they are in that business, created a solution and said, wow, this is so good. I'm going to make it into a vertical market solution. And I think the biggest mistake some people make is that if they don't approach a vertical market solution as a software, as owning a software company, then they're usually uh, not going to do very well. If they just treat it like, okay, I just I happen to love event planning, so I'm going to be the best, the best event planner, and I've made the software that works for me. You really have to approach it as, no, I'm now making software for other people, and you have to be cognizant of those decisions. But my point being is that Oz is run by a very dedicated uh, owner and a guy passionate who came from the music, you know, booking artists and events and things like that, cover bands and and major events, corporate events, things like that. So. All of that knowledge, all of that love and passion came and comes out in the software that he makes, and uh, it's a great success story. And when we go through each of these case studies, I'll spend just a tiny bit of time talking to our listeners here about how it's constructed, because I find this perhaps most fascinating from a development standpoint is that each one of these are a little different in the way that they're deployed, in the way they're executed, and the way that they take advantage of the FileMaker platform. In such case of Oz, this solution is completely 100% web direct. It is not deployed any other way other than web direct for the most part, or 99.9% of it. Obviously, 
when they make changes that you're using FileMaker Pro, but the deployment is 100% WebDirect. And what I also find interesting about this solution, which seems to be different than a lot of the others, is it's multi-tenant. So this person has a single FileMaker file for all the customers and all the data, and it's separated using you know the security model that's built into FileMaker among some other ways to separate it, but it is a single file. So for this particular solution, deployment couldn't be easier. You simply go to the file, make the change, and everybody now has that change, just like we're used to in custom development projects where you might have 100 people on, in one system. You make a change, and it, it's good for everyone. Well, this guy has managed to make a vertical market a multi-tenant solution, which, by the way, seems to be uniquely different than a lot of the other verticals we come across where people are making separate files for each customer. In addition, he has integration with Google and Mail and QuickBooks integration using our plugins as well. So for this particular uh, customer, we host the solution, we provide consultation as well as plugin integration for those connections I mentioned. So very fascinating, very interesting. You can find more about that particular solution if you just want to check it out. Just go to oz, that's O-Z dot A-P-P. That's the actual URL, oz.app. So, Mark, I've got a few questions for you. I think I've got three. Um, I just want to clarify, you guys built this for them, but they market the vertical market solution themselves, right? No, we did not build this. They they built it entirely uh, on their own with the help of um, maybe some selected platinum partners. Uh, we helped build aspects of it or consult on aspects of it. But no, we this, this is not our brainchild. This was built completely by the owner. Are you hosting it for them or...? Yes, okay, we are hosting it. Connection right there. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, we're hosting it and our plugins provide the connectivity. Now, as far as WebDirect, I generally try to steer my clients away from it um, because of limitations. And I think more importantly, in this case, performance, because they can't have so many concurrent users with this multi tenant solution. I'm just curious how that works, if you can explain a little bit about it. Sure. Well, number one, um, th this is something that really wasn't possible perhaps way back in the early stages prior to WebDirect when it was called Instant Web Publishing, where the limitations were so profound that you know it, it just became an unacce unacceptable experience in most cases. But I, was, I had the exact same thought pattern and comments like, wow, you actually going to do WebDirect for your entire deployment model? And he does, and he does live with some limitations here and there, and the limitations are becoming less and less as each new version comes out and as each you know passing year happens and we find workarounds for all this stuff. But I think any limitations that might be had with WebDirect, and there are some, uh, he lives with. The customers don't actually realize the difference, and he takes advantage of all the benefits of WebDirect. And as far as, far as a performance goes, a multi-user Concurrency. I don't think he's at the point where he's got thousands of users simultaneously logging into the single file. I don't think he's at that point yet. Yes, he has um, dozens of customers, hundreds of users, but I would say um, he hasn't reached those performance limitations. And we haven't even deployed to the the option that we have where we can have multiple WebDirect servers happening. You know, using the the master and the you know. You can set. You can go up to five hundred concurrency that way by deploying on multiple servers. So we haven't even had to exercise that yet at this point. So one server, a hundred, 
Yeah, five servers concurrent. multiplied by five, five hundred, five hundred concurrent. That doesn't mean that you can't have thousands of people just all at the same time. They can't come in. Correct. It, and if you have the hardware, I mean, just so people understand, the the performance issues with WebDirect is because almost everything's done on the server, so it has to render all the FileMaker layouts into cascading style sheets and all that kind of good stuff, and push it out to the to the web along with all the data. If you're doing custom web publishing, all of that data comes over, but that's all it comes over. You, it, it formats it on in the web browser itself. So that's one reason why there's a performance concern. Um, but I guess because of the hardware that you're using and uh, the advancements with WebDirect, it's working out just fine for you guys. Yeah, it is. And uh, we recently upgraded to 19 and we're likely going to go with the latest, latest, latest version of 19, which just came out this week and, you know, go down those paths, but no performance hasn't been a problem. Uh, when it comes to web direct, it seems as though, you know, you add more memory, you add more horsepower processing for, and this really relates to multiple transactions, but it's so funny because I was talking to another, uh, vertical again, that'll be our third case study today. Um, and he was saying just the opposite of what you're saying. WebDirect performs so much better over the wide area network than FileMaker does because of the distances that it must traverse and the latency in the back and forth. So yes, it takes a lot to draw the, the layouts and, su and such, but at the end of the day, the end result of getting that data to you quickly in your browser is going to happen a lot quicker in WebDirect than it would with FileMaker Pro under the same exact conditions. So Yes, performance is a funny thing. You have to put a lot of caveats when you talk about performance because it depends on what aspect of performance you're talking about versus WebDirect versus Pro. Well, it also depends what you have. I mean, you can throw more hardware at it. Um, you can design your solution more efficiently. I mean, there's yep. so many factors in how it performs. It's not just looking at what the stats are on the FileMaker page. You have to really understand how FileMaker works in order to design something that works well. And it sounds like it's working great here. Um, I have one last question about uh, about uh, performance, and that is you mentioned that you're using record level access security to keep one company away from the other company's records. And I trust that completely. I'm not worried about the, the security aspect of it, but I'm a little concerned about the performance. Um, and it's always been an issue with viewing, not record level access for uh, editing or for deleting and things like that. It's it's going to be for viewing that, that it's like having an unstored calculation on the page. How, how have you found that performance to be in this solution? I don't know. I haven't personally seen every screen of the solution to know if it performs to my level of expectation. I believe it performs to the level of his customers and his level of expectation. I would suspect, though, because I understand exactly what you're saying, and I have the same exact concerns like, hmm, long term, lots of records. What's that really going to play out to? Because I've seen solutions you know, come to a dragging halt because they have way too complex of an unstored calc for their, for their security you know, and what, what's going to be viewed and what isn't going to be viewed under what conditions. So you can really mess that up in a big way. And all of a sudden, just opening the solution takes forever because of the mandates over the customized security within that exact setting that we all know and love. So yeah, I've seen I've seen bad things happen. Right now, they haven't happened on his solution, but these are the kinds of things that we occasionally talk about and say, you know, are we thinking long term on this, and how's this going to play out? 
kind of interesting in his situation, he could potentially just say, okay, well, I've got these hundred customers in this multi-tenant file. Let's make a brand new multi-tenant file for these hundred customers and uh, kind of divide and conquer to solve the security problem rather than maybe redesigning it and creating a whole nother way of handling it. So there's nothing in his solution that would require him to update both the files if, if he decided to separate it? Oh, I'm sure there would be. I'm sure there would be because actually he's very passionate about not building custom solutions for each customer where versus one customer gets the same solution or at least has the ability to use preferences to change what they have or they don't have. But yeah, he's really passionate. He says, I don't know how any vertical market solution could survive today if they had to do customization customer by customer. Uh, but you know, that's a philosophy and that's not everyone agrees on that philosophy. And um, as you'll learn in our future case study that we totally embrace the customization aspect uh, customer by customer when it's appropriate. Actually, this is a, this is an interesting point to just jump in. Um, and first of all, with the web direct, I've got one customer who uses web direct extensively, and um, I'm not going to go into the detail except that he's managing thirty different uh, clients who each have their own individual web direct file that connects to the main file. And when they log in, it stores their ID and only displays records related to their ID. So there are thousands and thousands of records in the main file, but each customer is only dealing with a certain number of related records. So it's incredibly fast and responsive. So from that standpoint, it's very, very, very good. The, the other thing, Almost like a separation model? Well, it is in this case, John. It is a separation model, and it's actually the one real time that I would adopt the separation model for this specific purpose. And because the requirements for each of these customers and the way they look at the data, what type of reports they want, how they want their data displayed, is different. They're not identical. Now, there are probably, of the 32 that are there, there are probably 15 of them that are more or less identical and you could use a single file for that but it's as it happens he's just gone this way to to do it this is one of um, mark's customers by the way so it's worked out really well just to use this model it does require a little bit of extra work in certain things but as it is, it's a it's a good solution, and uh, I'm more than a little impressed with it. As are his clients. Mark, you had something to say? No, uh, I, w- I was just going to say, and in, in some of the case studies we're going to talk about uh, in the case study three, we're going to talk about the separation model and how that plays into their particular vertical market. Yeah, that's that's kind of what Mark Mike uh, Michael was referring to because we've, I think, it was it like one of our first podcasts. We, we laid into the separation model, but that doesn't mean we're totally against it. It's just, it just means that I think people who use it for every solution is a big mistake. And uh, clearly in this case, if I understand what you're saying, Michael, is that they have one database, the main database, and then they have all these customized files that access the information, the main information inside that main database. And it, and it, and I, I wouldn't even really call it the separation model necessarily. 
yet it kind of is. It's just, you know, but I, I think that works really well in this situation. I And I think my point is here is that there's many ways you're going to see through all these case studies. There's not one way to develop a vertical market solution. It just because runtime is dead doesn't mean that there are no other ways to make a vertical market solution. And people have been doing it without the runtime for a long time. So hopefully uh, we get a lot of people understanding that there's many solutions for, for vertical market solutions. Well, I mean, everything we do in FileMaker can be encompassed in four words, thinking outside the box. It's a fundamental thing we all have to be really good at and adept at. And when you're developing a vertical market solution, it's a lot about thinking outside the box and coming up with the best way to handle the particular situation. Well said. So I, I don't know if you had anything to add about Oz, Mark. I don't know if we skipped over any information. We kind of get to our questions. We, we're so excited to ask them, but we don't want to interrupt you. No, no. I, I, I think that concludes Oz. Uh, I'll just say that this person manages this entire vertical market solution because it's so automated and because everything he does in and around it is automated. You know, he's really has essentially a smaller crew in order to support it than you would otherwise think uh, because of some of the amazing things you can do from an automation standpoint. And um, so I'm really impressed with that solution. And I think it's a great case study for, those considering a vertical market and who probably discounted WebDirect early on, uh, you know, because uh, the pundits will say, well, that's not a way to build a solution uh, for, for this and that. But, um, and in fact, it is. It can be and under the right conditions. And if you approach it correctly, WebDirect is a viable deployment method. Yeah, I know that I've always said WebDirect is something I would never recommend to my customers, but I'm, I, you know, I'm not so old of a dog that I can't learn a few new tricks. So I, I will, I will take a look at WebDirect again. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's good for under the right conditions. And if you license it correctly and all that, it, it can be a good think, solution. And I would have, I would have thought the same thing, John, yeah. three years ago, you know, I had things the same change, right? mindset. Things change, and people prove what we thought is impossible to I be think, possible. I uh, think Michael had something snarky to say. Well, I was—I <laughs> forgot. I was going to say you are an old dog, but then you'll just point out how much older I am than you. So I better keep my mouth. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. that was. <laughs> except I heard your—I heard the breath come out of your voice. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Michael, we're on. We're on to you. I know you talked about your ISP billing case study. Is there anything else you wanted to add on to it? Because that was our next case study. Well, I don't know if there's anything you left out or Mark brought to light that you wanted to mention about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it was a, a a total learning experience because, as you can imagine, I'd never done it before, and I don't know if I was the first, but I was certainly very early into the vertical market area with, with using FileMaker. And I marketed that solution for the next seven years. And basically, it was a full time job for me for seven years. And eventually closed it down because the whole market consolidated into the big players who had huge budgets and big Oracle systems, and they didn't need the small solution. But 
there were a lot of lessons to be learned from it. One was about the customization aspect. And, you know, we've all got different approaches. And my approach was, if you want customization, I, all the development work was done on one master file. But so if you want a custom custom feature, it's going into that master file. I'm not going to create a separate file for you. It's too much work. So I'm going to add it into the master file, master solution, and with the option to have it turned on or turned off. And if you asked for it, you paid for it. But anybody else who then got that solution, got that customization for free, and they only paid what they asked for. So in a way, it was like, yeah, you're going to pay for this, but you're not going to pay for the next five requests that people are asking for. So how expensive actually it is. And that approach worked very well for me. But the one lesson I, I learned, and this is really important lesson to everybody who's thinking of doing this, is that if you develop or market a vertical solution, you are going to get people coming out of the woodwork saying, I'd buy this if it only did this. And what you find is you go ahead and you go fantastic and you put it in, you spend all the time and the effort and then you go back to them and they go, well, we weren't really that serious. So after having gone down this rabbit hole three times, at least, I stopped saying, yeah, we'll put it in. And I, instead I was saying, if you give me an order today, I will confirm that we will put this feature in. But it will not be confirmed and it will not go in without you placing an order. And that's the end of it. And I was absolutely hard nosed about it. And it's it got rid of the tire kickers for sure. Yeah, those are all important lessons. Do you, do you feel like the data migration tool changes how you would do that? You know, as far as the customization, would you be more apt to do customized vertical market solutions since you could import the data or do you feel that's still going to rely on you importing the data and you don't want to do that? No, I, the data migration tool is a fantastic tool to deploy the solution once it's, the changes have been made. But the only thing that I won't do is do different versions for different people. I've got one solution and everything is in that. And... I'm not, it's just too much work to have multiple versions. In my opinion, it's more work than I'm willing to do. And I don't think it's work that's necessary to do. What do you think, Mark? I'm glad you asked that. And we are going to get that. That talk is going to come out again in number six, uh, the six case study today. But uh, this is a perfect lead in for the next case study, the smart designer, because it actually uses the separation model. And it talks about the data migration assistant. And I think it'll touch upon all those points uh, if I go through that case study now. Yep. Great. The floor is yours. Okay, great. So this next next case study is from a company called The Smart Designer. The name of the product is called Design Smart. It's all one word. You can find them at thesmartdesigner.com. And it's a solution that is designed specifically for interior designers. Basically, it's project management for interior design firms people who manage, you know, anything that you want designed, whether it be commercial or retail uh, retail or residential properties, things like that. So it's a very interesting solution 
Uh, and it does a whole heck of a lot. Proposals, images, purchase orders, invoices, specifications, budgets, templates, time tracking, order tracking, product library, task tracking. You know, it's, it's an all-inclusive solution. And what I think was most unique about this when I was exploring it is that it's a multi-file solution with the separation model, but the front end of the system is a single FileMaker file for all customers talking to multiple FileMaker backends as the data repository. So think of a triangle. At the top of the triangle is a single FileMaker interface file. And then below the triangle, on the bottom of the triangle, each bucket is a FileMaker table file. It's a, it's a unique FileMaker file with each customer's data within. And I'd never really seen that particular separation model deployed that way. And the key to their deployment when they make changes, uh, and like you, Michael, they they really don't make custom changes for each customer in a, in a meaningful way. It's everyone gets the same thing, essentially. Um, they do it this way. The interface file is a quick change. You basically close it and open it, make the new changes that way. The Each of the buckets is done with the data migration tool using something that they homegrown created, an automated system, you know, close the file, do the data migration assistant, open the file. And that's how they do their thing. And I, of all the verticals that I've ever come across, no one has ever set it up like that, to my knowledge, exactly in that way. Now, this is an alternative to record level access, which we talked about before, right? Yeah, actually it is. And when you think about that, it's sort of, it's a physical barrier between the data buckets because, hey, your data is not commingled with other people's data. It's in its own file. It's undeniably separated. Um, so in that case, now I asked, well, how do you do that with one interface file? And we basically said, well, with a lot of layouts and a lot of scripts, you know, so because you do have to manage the data in different ways. This data is coming from here. This data is coming from there. But it seems to work well for them, um, especially on the UI, the user interface being one file. Um, and then, of course, it's with the data migration assistant deployment is is going to be a lot speedier than it would be if you were doing like a manual import process, things like that. Um, Ninety nine percent of their deployment is also using WebDirect. So even though they have this file, this interface file, it's accessed using WebDirect. The only exception to that are for the people that are using QuickBooks Desktop, because QuickBooks Desktop has no capability to work on the web in any way, shape, or form per se. They're using our plugin, and then they actually say, "Okay, well, for for integration with QuickBooks, you got to use FileMaker Pro, and that's fine." But everyone else is WebDirect. You know, that's a really interesting um, model. And as I'm listening to you describe it, machines and cogs are whirring around in my little brain, thinking, "Oh my God, that is just too much work." <laughs> exactly. Well, it's you know. <sighs> It, it is so funny how people think uh, about how they want to construct their solution. And I find that the people that want to do the least amount of work after a solution is sold are the ones that want to do no, no customization and you know everyone gets the same thing so that they can scale. And the funny thing about that is in the first case study where we talked about Oz, we're talking about a small crew and... It's scalable without adding a lot of employees. So it, that worked well. And for Happy Software, they experimented with both. In the early days, they would encourage and be open arms about customization. Then as they grew and as they had more and more customers and as their company evolved and they added more and more employees, they realized, wow, customization is starting to get 
to be more trouble than it's worth. So they started charging like $250 an hour to discourage customization. And then finally, towards their later days, they completely removed customization altogether. If you want customization, it can't be done. It's this way or and that's that. You know, buy it as is. It was interesting to see them evolve over time based on their size and their philosophy on on that. So Michael, again, what you're saying is, you know, it's a philosophical decision, but it's not necessarily a hard and fast rule. Well, I don't think there are ever any really hard and fast rules in in the farmaker world, um, specifically in the farmaker world, because we've got amazing tools and amazing options and the flexibility is just off the charts. But it also comes down to, you know, when we we have to put a value on our time. It's one of the most important things that every business owner has to do is what is your time worth and how do you justify the time you're spending? And to, to my mind, that type of level means that it's just hard to justify that amount of time that you're spending on a solution doing that complex a mechanism unless they're charging so much money that it doesn't matter. So it's difficult to say. I think it I think it does depend. And what you'll hear in the in the later case study here as we move along when we talk about our own vertical, um, you'll see why we embrace customization and um and I think you'll see it from a different point of view in our situation. I because I think you're right. Scaling, it depends on what type of scaling you're talking about. And 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 Mike, you're so right about uh, every business is designed differently. Each business has a certain culture and philosophy on how they want to go about generating revenue. And you could take two giant behemoth companies, something like Microsoft, who sells software, like our operating system software or Microsoft Word that does what it does. There's no customization for that. And they're a huge behemoth company, highly successful, generate tons of revenue. But you can look at another huge company like SAIC, whose sole purpose is to do nothing but customization, customer by customer by customer. And they're doing wildly successful and doing their thing based fundamentally on being custom, customer by customer. They don't have a vertical market solution per se, or if they do, it's not necessarily what I know them for. So I think this just goes way back. A developer can choose FileMaker and deploy and develop however they see fit based on all these uh, options. And a business can be designed and constructed to def- deliver their revenue in a way that lines up with their philosophy. So it is very interesting. No, it's a, definitely it's a very interesting uh, marketplace. The only uh, comment I'm just going to make, just as a, throwing this out there because it came to mind, is that people are, who are listening to this are going to wonder how they find a vertical market solution to develop, and. Basically, every time somebody comes to anybody and says, I need a solution to do this, the chances are they've looked for it and they haven't been able to find it. So there's your vertical market right there. It's just if you want to go and chase it. Yeah. And I largely agree with that. And there would be 40 questions I would ask anybody contemplating that. These are the 40, you know, these are the 40 so-called questions you have to ask yourself before you embrace a particular vertical market starting with are you sure there's nothing else on the market second how big is the market you know what's the appetite for custom software or a software of any kind yeah just a million questions uh to consider yeah usually when somebody approaches me with a vertical market solution 
idea. They want me to do all the programming for free and take a percentage. <laughs> oh, God, boy, did you strike a nerve there. I used to say to Keith, uh, if I had a nickel for every vertical market, I, literally people would come to us and sometimes still do about once a week with that exact proposal. Hey, maybe you guys can build it. You know, you take the hit, you you build it, and then you guys market it, and then you know you give me a royalty or fifty percent for my idea. <laughs> <laughs> I want fifty percent for the idea. So execution is everything, and that's where all the that's really where the blood, sweat, and tears is. It's not necessarily on the idea, but the execution of it. So I, I'm really intrigued about this deployment here. And for me, I see everything in terms of advantage, disadvantage. So when I look at the Oz deployment with the WebDirect, you, you could see my questions were, were aimed towards that. But I, I understand with their record level access, how they're separating all the data. Now, with the, the new study, the smart designer, um, it's, I, I, I'm, I see the big disadvantages, all those layouts and scripts and cut, you know, specialization they have to put in the, the, the main file. So what is the big advantage of that approach? Have you ever analyzed that? Do you, do you know the answer to that? Maybe, maybe you don't. I don't know. I don't know the exact answer as to how they came to the conclusion of their architecture um, or what all the disadvantages and advantages are, um, you know, in great detail. I mean, I have my guesses and my suspicions. Well, certainly they can put a new layout or a new script inside the interface file, the, you know, the standard separation model, things apply in this case. Right. And, you know, they, they also came from a background prior to working with FileMaker, they used to work with a vertical market using Oracle. So perhaps some of those architectural decisions came from what they had already experienced and had success with on another platform. So perhaps they might have taken some of those ideals and incorporated them into the FileMaker platform for their current vertical. So you know, there's a there could be history there as to why things were done a certain way. But I don't know all the details. But it would be interesting to find out. Yeah, I, I mean. You know, I can see it clearly with case study number one, what the advantages and disadvantages are. I, I think it's an interesting uh, concept. I'm not uh, saying anything bad about it. I'm just, I'm just curious because I'd never seen anybody deploy this way. And, and uh, certainly I can see some of the advantages, but I also see a lot of disadvantages. And I'm wondering, you know, there must be some things that allow them to do what they want to do more easily. And it, it might be very specific to their vertical market. And so I guess my point is that, you know, you need to make sure that you analyze what you, how you're going to deploy it because it makes a big difference. And it it's not going to be the same for everybody. Not everybody's going to deploy the same way because they have different needs. Mm -hmm. Correct. Different needs, uh, different, like I said, philosophies on how they want to construct their upgrade process and how they want to do upgrades. You know, do they, are they going to work on the live file? Are they going to work on a developer copy? I mean, most people work on a developer copy at this point. Um, and, you know, in their case, a, a clear advantage is, oh, wow, the data is separated. So there's no possibility of the data being commingled. And if a customer had some sort of mandate that said their data had to be separated due to security reasons or HIPAA compliance or anything else like that, then they could say, well, yeah, your data is in its own file. It's separated. There's, and there's no question about it. It can be argued easily. So um Sometimes it just comes down to mandates when it comes to security and how you architect something, you know, best practices. 
And sometimes it's just maybe that's just the way they rolled out of bed that morning when they created it and said, okay, this is, I'm going to go in this direction. And they never looked back. It could, it could simply be that too, as many, I'm sure many of our projects have just started one way and you just keep on going with that way. Cause like we keep saying on this podcast, FileMaker is so doggone flexible uh, that there's just more than one ways to do, do things. So we've talked a lot about different deployment methods and, I'm sure you've got other case studies and perhaps other methods, but I think it might be time to switch over to sales and marketing because all the deployment stuff is all interesting and technical, but how do you make money? And, you know, if you can't make money, why are you in the business? Because we're in business to make money. We're not doing it for the good of our, you know, well, some of us are, but... (laughs) Well, I think I think uh, that's a really important question. I think that's going to be best covered when we cover the the vessel services solutions that Mark programmed and marketed and sell, sold, and, and maybe we should talk about it then and and get into your your uh, your next uh, case study, Michael, the other vertical market solution you had. Sure. So, so Michael, did you want to discuss uh, the hay and crop manager? It is a very interesting case study. Um, and it really wasn't about deployment uh, because we basically used the runtime model to deploy it because it was, for the most part, we were dealing with small individual farms where they would just have one computer and one person entering data. And this for me was a, a sort of, it became a a passion project because I was brought in to work on this solution and develop it and got it to the point of it went to market and we were marketing it as a way for farmers within the US primarily to manage their business properly so they knew what they were planting, what it was costing them to plant, what the yields were, how much they were spending to get those yields how much inventory they had, who they were selling it to, when they were delivering it, all of that stuff. And the people who were developing it over a period of time became quite close friends and they ran out of money, literally ran out of money. But I, And I was, by that time, I was excited and highly involved with it and I invested money into it. So I became a, a partner with them on this solution and we did this for several years the program won the was one of the top 10 new products for the ag business in 2008 so it was a big kudos we did trade shows all over the country some of which were just horrendous we did the world ag expo four years in a row and if you ever feel like having a miserable time go to Tulare in february and demonstrate a software program in a tent where there's rain pouring down outside, wind is howling in from every direction, and most of the people are just trying to stay warm. That's how miserable it was. But we and we were relatively successful with it. But we found out one lesson. Farmers didn't want to use it. Farmers didn't want to sit down with a computer. They just wanted to put their keep their notes on pieces of paper. And we couldn't overcome that. What year, what time frame was that, Michael? Well, we released it in 2008 and we we basically kept it alive 
for nine years. Wow. Yeah, we had something similar with uh, the boat captains in many ways. But I'll get to that when we get to that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really interesting. The The point that you brought up is is making sure that people want your product, right? Um, it's it's a tough situation because you can make the it, it can make your life so much easier. But if farmers, I can imagine how they'd be, you know, maybe opposed to using computers. They're more, you know, I want to get myself out there on a tractor or whatever they're doing. They don't want to sit down in front of a computer. Maybe maybe more modern, um, you know, farmers are doing that. But yeah, I I can see how that, you know, how that uh, that might have not worked for some farmers. Well, we did some research and we determined that there were, forget the number, something in the region of 790,000 small farms in the US. And, you know, with that number, you only have to get a tiny percentage of that market to make your product wildly profitable. And we didn't lose money on it, but we certainly didn't make um, a ton of money as we'd hoped we would when we got involved in doing the product. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, uh, even with market research and knowing the market size, it, you know what you'll end up selling is really just almost rolling the dice in many ways. And you know you could throw brute force consistency at it, and you can throw all the love and passion and all the features you want, but at the end of the day, it's nearly impossible to know whether you have something that's actually going to sell or it isn't. You might have some, some suspicions and you might really know the industry well, and you might have a, a list of people saying that they want it. But at the end of the day, uh, so many things have to go right for it to start selling. And uh, I think that's another big gotcha when, when a developer says, yeah, hey, I, I could throw this into a product. Oh, this looks easy. you know. I, Keith and I always say, building it is the easy part. Selling it is the bear. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's a bear with very sharp teeth and claws. <laughs> yes. Would you say it's akin to opening a restaurant? Because everybody knows that almost every restaurant that opens up fails within the first year. Um, it's not easy to, to create a vertical market solution and then get people to, to see it or to get them to buy your product over the other product. And so I, I would imagine that the statistics are somewhat the same, that vertical market solutions fail a lot. You've got to be really determined and know your market really well to make, you know, give you the chance to succeed. Even if, even if you know all that stuff, like Michael said, we did all this research, that doesn't mean success. You've still got to do a lot of work, uh, you know, as far as, is you know, getting into people's hands. Yeah. And it's so funny because as I just got done saying that building it is easy and, and selling it is the bear, the exact opposite thought pattern happens with the customers behind the passion and the expertise. They'll say, ah, oh, I could sell this till I'm blue in the face. All my buddies want it. This is such a huge need to in my industry, but building it, it's impossible. I have no skills to build it. I can't find a developer to build it. It's going to cost me a half a million dollars to build it. So in their world, building it is the bear and selling it is easy. Moral of the story, I think you need a marriage of both. A well-defined product that works well and is actually going to launch married with the ability to sell it, understand it in the marketplace. 
Well, I got to tell you a funny story about this exact scenario. I, I had somebody say that same thing to me, and I said, "How many buddies do you think would buy it?" And he went, oh, "I got ten buddies who would buy it right now." I says, "What do you think it's going to cost to develop?" He said, "I don't know." I said, "Okay, I'm going to give you a number: twenty thousand. Call all your ten buddies and tell them you need two thousand. They'll get a copy for free when it's done." <laughs> Right. What happened? Yeah, none. Yeah, nothing. That's none. Right. <laughs> Zero. Nobody, nobody was willing to put their money where their mouth was, and and I said, "This is just proof. You don't know. You know, people will say anything, but they don't mean it." Yeah. So, but I, I would not take on a vertical market solution if I have all the skills and all the developers at my fingertips. Uh, I would not take on a vertical market solution unless you have a solid idea on how to sell it and have expertise, absolute expertise and connections in that industry. If you don't have the expertise and connections, it makes it a 100% uphill battle to sell it because you have no, you have no credentials. You have no, there's nothing you know in the industry. You, you're just sort of a nobody. And yeah, you can start out of thin air, but you're going to be waiting years before you you really catapult into something that that's feasible in my opinion. No, no, I think that's a valid opinion. And I tell that to everybody, you need to know the market in order to sell into it. You need to have the connections. Like you said, it's not an easy thing. People will listen to people who are insiders more than they'll listen to people that are outsiders. Right. And there's a trust factor, you know, business with no like, and trust. Well, that happens to be the industry, you know, and that's the funny thing about verticals. And that's where the success happens. Once you sell to a few key people in an in industry, it spreads like brush fire. And all of a sudden, that becomes the household name. And if you want to solve this problem, you buy this piece of software. And at that point, you're less concerned with what it costs. It's more about, yeah, Joe has this software, so I need it because Joe and Barry tell me this is what they use. So I'm going to use it so I can have the same good luck they have. But you need, in order, in order to do that, Mark, you need to have strategic partners who will make those recommendations. And mm -hmm. finding a Absolutely. strategic partner, the right strategic partner, is difficult to say, say the least. And you can very end the and very easily end up with absolutely the wrong strategic partner. So that's something you have to consider. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. You you have to. It's it's really becomes a business partnership. Um, so, you know, they it it's it's like I go back. It's it's a marriage between the expertise and the industry versus the development capabilities uh, to launch an actual software product and to support it after the fact too. Because a lot of these guys will have passion around what they create, but not interested in taking a phone call and how do I deploy this? It's not installing on my computer. Why ha what happens when I click this button? Why doesn't it do this? That's the, that, they find that to be the ugliest part of a vertical market. So how, what do you do in those cases? You know, so in our case, it's, it's really a marriage and a partnership between the experts and the people who are experts at the software. Now, so. Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, but Happy Software was both the subject matter expert and the programmer, the expert in programming on that. Is that Correct. Yeah, so that's Correct. unusual. You don't often find that you don't have to have a partnership to do it. Yeah. Well, in their case, 
it, um, it mother um, necessity was the mother of invention, or however you want to say that. They started in a vertical market. They chose FileMaker, and then decided to become absolute experts on the level of like a platinum firm would become experts, where they hired people, and they were geeky about it. Um, yeah, they loved their business, but they also loved FileMaker so much so that they made a plugin for QuickBooks and then sold it to the FileMaker industry, which is very rare for vertical markets to fool around with such a small item, you know, such an offshoot from their main focus. Yet, it, you know, really comes down to Joe Mastriani and his brother who were, who just love FileMaker. So they became very developer-like in their journey of their vertical. Which, like you said, John, is, is extremely rare and magic when it happens. If, if, it, if it actually can happen, then it is magical. Well, I don't think people realize when they're a subject matter expert that they have to put in you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 hours a week to really get good at FileMaker to develop a solution that you know how to develop in your mind but don't have those skills yet. It takes, it takes years to become a good FileMaker developer, and, and these guys are unusual because you know, they, they, they did this, that it's just not common to have people learn FileMaker that well to sell a vertical market solution, maybe a solution for your business. But I often find people are underestimating how much time it's going to take to learn FileMaker. Yes, it's really easy to use. But when you're talking about a vertical market solution that has some depth, you need to have depth of knowledge in FileMaker also. Yes. And that depth, it goes beyond just what button to click. It goes it really extends to what is the best methodology for this particular problem I'm trying to solve. You know, do I use a portal? Do I use a list view? Do I use this? And all of that, to your point, John, really takes years to learn or appreciate. Uh, and and unfortunately, this is actually a good point. Um, I actually don't believe that I was remotely good at FileMaker until I'd spent 5,000 hours working with it. And in order to develop a vertical market solution, you've got to be really good at FileMaker. And that's going to take a huge commitment in learning and moving forward. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Michael. And in looking back, I when I was at the beginning of my career, I thought it was really good. And uh, but looking back right now, I'm like, wow, the things I didn't know, <laughs> you know, I didn't know what I didn't know. And the changes are more frequent uh, these days. I'm just thinking about how many developers for the first time ever are going to be witness to something called FileMaker Server on Linux, uh, witness to add-ons for the first time, witness to any kind of JavaScript programming within their environment, you know. So it's it's not just FileMaker that we're learning. We're also learning all the other ancillary things that FileMaker has the capability to talk directly to and work with. And it feels more and more like it's going to be hard for one human being to know it all, that you're really going to need teams and other experts in different pockets to accomplish you know, the mission. The, also, the thing is that I've been doing it. I'm now in my 33rd year of doing this, and I've got a little bit of, you know, longevity over the two of you. Not much, but a little. I'm still learning FileMaker every single day. There isn't a week goes by that I don't learn something new. And, I mean, that's an extraordinary 
thing to say about any piece of software, but it just goes to show you how much knowledge you have to have to be a professional developer. Oh, sure. Yeah, which is also changing, you know, with every new feature and every passing year. But yeah, there's so much under the hood. And it's so funny because we work with people who've been working as internal developers for, oh, 20 years, you know, and they'll come to our firm and sort of have a mind-blowing experience to think, wow, I had no idea FileMaker could even do some of the stuff that you guys are asking me to do. And here I am thinking I'm a 20, 25-year veteran working on internal systems and proud of it. Uh, but once when, you start working for a, you know, a development company where you're seeing all kinds of solutions and all kinds of methods, it, it becomes a, a, a shocking experience for most people who have not crossed that path. So again, to your point, it's deep, it's wide, it's vast. Definitely. I mean, when I was, when I just said I'm still learning something new, I'm talking about, I'm learning something new, pure FileMaker. I'm not talking about all the add-ons and the APIs or anything. Just FileMaker, native FileMaker functionality. Uh, so I think we're probably ready for the next case study. We've got two more. Um, this is the one on GTR. Is that it? Yes. Yeah. The name of the company is GTR. And they, they've been around for a long time. They specialize in event registration, badge printing, attendance tracking, lead retrieval, virtual events, which I'm sure are gaining in popularity as we speak. Um, and what I think is interesting, they have a, a great and compelling story and a great, great series of solutions. I don't think they do strictly WebDirect. I'm not even sure they use WebDirect at all. But they do use a lot of uh, mobile type technology. And I think FileMaker Go is a big part of their strategy, especially when you think about attendance tracking on a trade show uh, site location where they're, you know, trying to book people into a show. And then there's a lot of pre-registration stuff, uh, web pages they'll create and construct for shopping carts so that people can go and register for an event. So they're a, an end-to-end -end provider for anyone who wants to put on an event specifically in the areas of, you know, large trade shows or any anything like that. I'm sure they do all kinds of events, but event registration is their claim to fame. What I find interesting about their particular solution, they are a hosting customer with productive computing, but they they have a front end, what seems like a front end that's different for every customer. So they do deploy that sort of a model where every customer has their own front end and potentially their own back end, <clears throat> but they don't use FileMaker as the back end. They use either Microsoft SQL or MySQL. I'm not exactly sure the exact database they use, but it isn't FileMaker. And so they're using ESS technology to make the magic happen between the FileMaker interface and the backend data. And, you know, when they, they've been doing this for years and we've been sort of hand in hand with them as far as seeing that grow and, and take off. And, you know, it's largely dependent on that very special driver that we have in the FileMaker industry, um, which you buy the driver and you install it on the server, and then that becomes the conduit between uh, FileMaker and the data. But I, th I thought it was interesting that, you know, even at the end of the day, with a separation model like this, it doesn't necessarily even have to be FileMaker as the backend holding the data. You can actually use a third party and get away with it. So that's what I find interesting about that. But if you want to check that out, uh, that company's solution is found at GTR now.com gtrnow.com it's interesting that they use uh, ess 
because hasn't that always been said by FileMaker Incorporated and then Claris that it's really just supposed to be some data? You know, you're not supposed to put all the data in the back end. It was never designed for that. Right. Absolutely. And that's what they say and probably still say to today. And I'm not exactly sure if they're actually using the ESS in the in the strict sense, um, or if I'm talking more generically, they're using ODBC technology to move the data back and forth, potentially using import from ODBC, possibly combination of ESS, or maybe something else altogether. Um, because like we've seen with this, potentially this customer and others, when you have your database in ODBC or, you know, in a, in a system that can talk ODBC or in a third-party database of any kind, now your website can talk directly to that system and not have to go through FileMaker. So if you're looking for performance gains or leveraging, you know, traditional web technologies using traditional databases, you can have your cake and eat it too. Uh, FileMaker can piggyback off that traditional database, and so can the web, which is probably more in line with what a traditional website would want holding data. So uh, so if you can take that and extrapolate that a little bit, you have the customer coming in, registering for an event. They hit a website. That website is talking to a back-end database. Let's just say, for argument's sake, Microsoft SQL Server. All the data is sitting in there. Then when it comes time to be on site for the event, FileMaker is talking directly to Microsoft SQL Server, getting that data, querying it, pulling it up, working with it, sending it back. To your point, John, it, it it's frowned upon as that being the mechanism for the entire solution, but yet it still exists. It's still a supported technology and people use it every day for all kinds of situations. So I think if used correctly, that kind of situation would work well. And in, and in some cases, work better than actually using FileMaker as a backend. And I'll give you one quick example of that. Productive Computing's registration system is not in FileMaker. It's actually in MySQL. And the reason for that is because every time one, one of our plugins opens up, it calls home and makes a transaction or you know puts, puts an indication as to is this registered or not. And we're talking about lots and lots of transactions in a given day, week, month, year. So much so that I didn't even want to think about having that in FileMaker for that particular case. So we built that part in MySQL. And then we have FileMaker as the front end looking into that registration system. And to the users at Productive Computing, they cannot tell, nor would believe me if I told them that all that information is elsewhere, doesn't exist in FileMaker. It's completely offsite somewhere else. And it's seamless, absolutely seamless. Um, now, there are cases where ESS should not be used and certain things that are not performing well and you have to be sensitive to caching and updating and record locking. But if you can get past all of that, it's an interesting model. So you don't actually update the information in the SQL database. You're just we, viewing it. We Mostly, yes. 99% is viewing. Very rarely do we need to update something. Like if someone calls and says, I need you to switch a server from a machine from one to another, yeah, we'll, we'll click a button. It'll put a checkbox and it'll do a very lightweight transaction into the system. Yet at the same time, that same database is, is getting pounded with data coming in from people using our plugin all over the world. So in a sense, it's, it's, putting, it's, it's going under much more stress than any of our FileMaker systems have ever gone through. But again, to reiterate, when, when we're looking at it from FileMaker, yes, it is largely read-only. 
So I think, again, if, if it's done correctly, I think it's an interesting model. And you know, the other thing I like about that, because we have we have other customers who um, have mission-critical database systems. And if, for whatever reason, FileMaker server would be interrupted, goes down, stops working, any number of things, it's like, it's something they can't have. It's just something that can't exist in their world. They need 24-7 uptime. And there's no real solid solution for that today in the world of FileMaker. So you know, one, I, one concept that I've been toying with is why not put the data somewhere where it's uh, more redundant in a traditional sense, something like, let's say, a scaled Amazon solution where you have all your data on a scalable database, one of the many that they have to offer. And then you use FileMaker as a front end so that if the FileMaker server goes down, you can have multiple front ends sort of in sync. And then if one goes down, the other one will take over. And to the user, they won't know the difference. It'll just be FileMaker, all beautifully coordinated and orchestrated through this scaling thing that I'm you know, contemplating working on for this one customer. But you couldn't do that as easily or at all if FileMaker is holding your data. FileMaker front end, no problem. Holding the data, whole nother story. So in that situation I just mentioned, your data would be in another repository and then your FileMaker front end. If, if FileMaker server goes down for whatever reason, you'll have uh, multiple ways to get it and you can mirror it, if you will. Mirror the front end, but the back end never changes. Very interesting stuff. All right. Are you ready to talk about the oh, final case study? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So finally, the, the final case study is, is one that's very close to home. It's a solution that we provide to the uh, tow boat industry, people who tow boats for a living. Uh, and it's called Vessel Service Solutions. And it's, it's obviously not our brainchild per se, but it all started with a product idea that we had, which allowed people to dispatch information and then have it sync up with the iPad and you'd essentially you would have a central dispatch system. The request would come in, you'd put an order in and it would move to your iPad and then you'd go out with your iPad, let's say re refrigerator repair person for argument's sake. They go in, they put in the parts, they put the labor and they have the customer sign it all on FileMaker Go and then they come back and sync with the main database uh, running in Pro. This is a solution we had on the shelf a while back. I don't even remember the name of it at the, at the moment, but um, this boat captain in San Diego came knocking on our door and said, hey, this is a neat solution that I think is very similar to what I need. Okay, let's talk about it. So essentially, we built him a custom solution like all of us on this phone often do. And when he started working with it and realizing what it could do, uh, he got so excited that his excitement boiled over to my excitement. He sort of became infectious. He says, I got to take this to the whole fleet. This is an amazing you know, thing that it's doing for my business. I think everyone would benefit from that. This guy has a heart of gold. I mean, all he wants to do is just help his industry. He's sort of the Pied Piper in his industry. You know, People look up to him. He's got a large company in the towboat industry. San Diego is a vibrant port that works all year long, whereas many ports in the Northeast and Northwest don't because of wintertime. So he was a great example, a real leader in his industry. And make a long story short, we talked about it earlier. He was the magic that could help sell it. He had so many buddies and he knew exactly what he wanted. He had industry expertise. So it, all of that, we got along with him and we could build it. So that that's it. The deal was struck. The marriage was made. And I kid you not, 
we haven't had to lift a finger selling it, really. It's all this guy that sells it for us. I, we would show up at a trade show and he'd walk people over and say, you got to check out this software. I'm using it for my business, blah, blah, blah. And it would just be one after another. And all we'd have to do is demo it, tell them what the price is and sign them up. So uh, yeah, I mean, that's sort of a special case, sort of an unusual case. I'm sure not all verticals are, are that in sync. And I love everything about this vertical except one thing. The one thing I don't love, love about it is the fact that the market is so small. There's only about 200 or so companies that do this sort of towboat rescue um, you know, throughout the whole nation. So the market is tiny. So even though we might own, I don't know, 30 or 40% of the market share of, of everyone that would want it, potentially, maybe even a little less than that, uh, the numbers aren't jumping off the page because the market is small. But it's still something we can call our own. It was a great starting vertical, and it puts us in a position to take on other verticals in bigger markets because now we have the experience to do, to do it this way. Any questions? Oh yeah, I've got I'll a lot of questions. <laughs> Go ahead, and I'll start, and then I'll talk about the architecture after you start asking questions. There, well, that might be part of my questions. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is FileMaker Pro. FileMaker Pro for the dispatchers, the people who actually you know, send the captains out, create the initial order, and then FileMaker Go for all the boat captains running on an iPad. No FileMaker server? A FileMaker server is is holding all the data, okay. and the files are unique to each customer. We start gotcha. with a template file, and then each customer gets uh, their own version of it. Do you, if you don't want to answer this question, I understand what sync product are you using? None. We do uh, homemade sync. Big fan of homemade sync. In other words, you know, traditional import export on a scale that's done correctly, accurately, and it works just fine. But, you know, there's a lot of caveats that go with rolling your own sync. But yeah, that's what we're doing. Nothing fancy. No plugins, no solutions at this time. We are going to be evolving into more of the data API sync rather than syncing using having to connect to the file and then import data and export data, that kind of thing. Uh, we'll be using the data API for more of a lightweight transmission of syncing going forward, but we don't have that deployed just yet. So, Mark, let me just throw a spanner in the works here. You said something that really interested me. You said you, the one problem you've got with it is it's a small market but it's not it's an enormous market and i'll tell you where it is an enormous market for what you're talking about for what they're doing yes it's a small market but every single lake that has boats out has a rescue service on that lake if it's a big lake and they got boats on it they have a rescue service and they have boats that have to go out and re rescue stranded sailors or broken down boats. It's just a natural extension. Have you ever thought about going into that market itself? Because it's already there. He, he, yeah, we think about that all the time. And when people hear about our solution, they say, well, why don't you do the same thing for towboats? Just do it for tugboats. Yeah, it's a boat. It's, it needs dispatch. And it all sounds great on paper, and it could just be my own stubbornness, but I don't have that Pied Piper in those other industries. And 
if if we are going to take on those other industries, I have to start thinking, okay, well, I got to hire a salesperson. I got to find an industry expert. I got to become an expert myself because it's not something that is built into the partnership. Uh, or, you know, so I think it's a matter of effort and again, kind of philosophy. It's like, I have to put a certain amount of effort and investment into this solution, which is fantastic and great. And it's so funny because everyone who's used this solution in that industry, they always win this award called the paperwork award. It's smooth. It's called the smooth sailing award. And it's for awarded to any company who has the best and most efficient system. And our software has won that award for the last five years. We don't win it ourselves, but the company, the towboat companies who use it win it. And boy, does that frustrate the people who are not using our software. <laughs> so um, it's it's very interesting. But yeah, to make a long story short, we think about it sometimes, Michael. We haven't really pursued it. And I think it's just a matter of some part of it is my own stubbornness. And the other part is just maybe not knowing where to get started or whether that would work, preconceived notions, any number of psychological roadblocks. Well, I think you're missing a big part of the equation, which we've defined, which is you need somebody who knows how to program it and somebody who knows how to sell it. And you're missing that other side of the equation. Who's going to sell to all these, you know, these places? um, And that's not a business you're wanting to get into. Yeah. And I would say that our success wouldn't be the same without that partnership. Um, And I'm not saying we couldn't recreate it, couldn't find it. But perhaps I just haven't been inspired to do it. It's different when someone comes and knocks on your door, shares a story, and and kind of convinces you this is the way to go, and I'll take care of it all. I'll bring the customers to you. That's a different conversation than saying, hmm, now I've got to call a bunch of trade sites and figure out who's in the industry, go go to a half a dozen trade shows before I meet anyone significant. It's like It's literally like starting from scratch out of thin air. Even though we have a solution that potentially could do the same thing, it's not much different than when a customer comes to you and says, hey, why don't you build this for our industry? It's like, okay, well, well, who's going to help me sell it? Who's going to help me understand it? Who's going to be there with me the whole way with the passion to bring it over the finish line? So I have a lot of questions regarding responsibilities because there's a lot of things that people forget about when they're creating a vertical market solution. I'd like to hopefully bring some of those things to light in, you know, in regards to this specific case study because you you know, are more involved. You're not just hosting the the product. You didn't just interview them. You've lived this. And so mm-hmm. my first question for you is who handles the customer, customer support and, and or technical support? Okay. So the customer support or technical support is handled by the same team that handles our hosting and plugin and solution support today. It's the same exact team. So if a, if a VSS customer calls in and says, hey, my thing isn't syncing, or I got a new iPad and I need help setting it up, then they'll call our regular number. It'll be the productive computing number. And you know we're proud to say it's productive computing. We don't try to say we're VSS, although we could, but we don't. Um, and they call in and it's, oh yeah, okay. So we actually have to train our team on that software product as if it was the core CRM or the FM Books Connector or any other product that we sell and maintain. The only difference being is that it's not a plugin. It's a solution, a live solution, you know, that has hosted data that people are using it in the field 24-7 and they're boat captains. They're usually in a hurry and there's a lot of wind in the background. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that we deal with on that front. 
did you have to hire an additional person to help with the extra workload or is it not that much? Or I, I'm just, a lot of people think they can do all the customer support themselves. And, and there's a lot of jobs involved in creating a vertical market solution and supporting it. What, what, you know, what's the case in this situation? The case is that we didn't actually hire someone specifically to, okay, now we've got VSS. Now we're going to hire somebody to support it, or we're going to add a person to the team just because of VSS. It's more of a natural evolution of things. Uh, our regular business hosting continues to gain in popularity and we continue to sell plugins. So as we get busier, we might hire a person to the support team, add that person to the mix, and they'll learn VSS on behalf of their regular job. So in our case, it's a little different, John, because we already sell products. We are already a software company. So this is just another product in the line of many products. But for someone starting a vertical, to your point, you do have to consider what infrastructure and or resources do you need to support it, to deploy it, to train people on it, and to um, onboard them when they're brand new. Because that, that tends to be the most difficult part of a vertical when you first start is the onboarding process, you know, getting that person to be able to buy it and, and configure it and then use it. But yeah, so in our case, it was a little special. I wouldn't even use us as a perfect example because we sort of, it was a natural part of our growth. Um, but if you are doing this for the first time, you do have to consider who the heck is going to take those calls at seven o'clock at night when you're typically eating dinner and someone needs help right now. And they're not going to take no for an answer. Well, I'm going to chime in. I'm going to chime in here, John, because with both ISP billing and Hancock Manager, I did all of the support for all of the clients, and it wasn't onerous. Um, the reason it wasn't onerous is because I made instructional videos. There was no point in make, writing an instruction manual because nobody reads them. And so it's just a waste of effort and you can't keep up with them anyway. So you make make videos that people can learn the program for. And when somebody calls in, I would know which video to refer them to and would send them a link with a, vid, with a link to the video, email with a link to the video. And then if they asked a question that hadn't been covered, I would go over with them. And then I would put together a video, which would then be added to the mix and that way. And I found that I didn't really get that many calls. It wasn't that onerous. And it, it was very rare that I would get a call in the middle of the night or while I'm eating dinner. I found I got those more from regular programming clients who wanted my help at 10 o'clock at night or sometimes three in the morning. That's a good point. And some verticals do have business hours. So we, uh, we, this, we only support the U.S. So we really only have and, – and really, they're saving people who, who are boating. So people don't tend to boat at 3 in the morning necessarily. That's not to say they don't get calls at 3 in the morning because they do. But in large part, they get busy when people boat, which is you know around the holidays, 4th of July. That's kind of, I mean, those are really busy times for those companies. But I have to agree with Michael in many ways. You do remind me that the, the support is kind of minimal when you think about it. If the solution's working and people are up and running, they don't want to call you. They just want to work. And um, so generally speaking, if there's not a major problem, you don't. It, it isn't onerous. It is something that happens and you have to be prepared for it. But it doesn't necessarily mean your life is over 
because you've deployed a vertical and you're worried about the support from that point forward. And Michael, I have to agree with you too. I have many a customer that would love to call me on a 7 a.m. on a Saturday just because that's when they feel like working and talking about their custom solution. Uh, that can be just as, uh, you know, uh, you have to take that into consideration. Oh, too. that happens to me all the time. Yeah. Does it, John? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't let them call me on the weekends, but they ask, hey, you can I call you on Saturday? I'm like, my wife says no. That's my answer. My wife says I can't do that. <laughs> Safe answer there, yeah. Well, I never I never said that, but I, I do remember I had one client who um, had me on a retainer, and the retainer was significant enough that when he called, he expected me to help. And when I was going out with my first wife, there were several occasions where in the middle of dinner and he called and I said, I've got to go. Sorry. Mm-hmm. And she got very annoyed at one time. And I says, she said, why? I said, cause he's paying me 5,000 a month to be on call. I'm like a doctor. Mm. And you know, when he calls, I go and that's my business. So it's sometimes inconvenient, but it's all, it's all relative to, you know, what you want to make a commitment for. And I've always told people, if it's an emergency, you can call me any time, day or night. But with regard to, you know, the support, what I found more often than not was it was, you know, I, it wasn't the question of how they would do something within the program. It was more a question of, would it be possible to do this? Is there a way to do this? Mm. And so those were sort of, well, yeah, there's two or three different ways you can, you know, you could do that. But that also required you, me, whoever is answering the phone, to have an incredible in-depth knowledge about every single aspect of the program. And if you haven't developed it, I don't think you can have that. Yeah, and let, you you don't get that kind of knowledge unless you regularly demo it and understand the industry, or you are the actual developer of it. But I agree wholeheartedly. If you're just loosely supporting it from a distance, you won't be able to have the kind of in-depth, uh, effective consultation to talk about a feature request with a customer unless you have that sort of... But I think the same holds true with any custom solution that you didn't build versus ones that you did. And, um, so what, when that happens, we actually say, okay, yeah, that, these are some good ideas. Let's talk about it with our developer. And then we'll do a, like a conference call. We have the manager, the developer there, and then we talk, collaborate. And then they come to me to say, okay, these are the features that were requested by XYZ. Do you want to put that in next year's changes? And then I go down the list with them and say, yes, no, yes, no type of thing. That's how it works in our company, at least. Now, one. One of the things I think that people forget about, and Michael touched on it, is that they're, in addition to supporting people through the phone and email, you often need to provide things like user manuals or videos, as Michael did. He preferred to do it that way. In fact, the way that Michael uh, operated was a lot like how uh, Claris 1.0 technical support worked. You know, if we got people calling a lot about a certain issue, we put it in the knowledge base, or we called it tech info back then. Um, I'm not sure what they call it now. They stopped calling it knowledge base on the website, but it's still there. And it just answers common questions. But I think a lot of people um, really want some type of manual, at least to get them started. Uh, in fact, it includes things like a help section. Like if you're, if you're 
building the solution based on something you built for your own organization, but now want to make it vertical, you have to add in tool tips and help sections and the user manual and the support. You have to think about this whole support thing. It's, it, it, it can be complex uh, to, to do that. You may have to hire some infrastructure. Um, in your case, uh, Mark, uh, with the VSS, who, who wrote the user's manual? I'm sure you have one. I don't think we actually have a user's manual for VSS. I think that was one of the the products that we built uh, purposely to not have a user manual, m- much with the same philosophy Michael, uh, you know, subscribes to. And but we do have training videos uh, for sure. And uh, again, because you need something potentially, you know. And when you think about modern software, you know, there's there's you can either talk about really complex vertical market solution software that does in fact take a manual and there's procedures and you click this, then you click that, and then you have to be aware of this. And here are the rules under each of these buttons. And you have to know all this versus what we're seeing today, which is software being released. There's no user manual for things like Airtable or anything on Google. There's no manuals for anything on the iCal, any piece of software that we use today, I would say common business use software including Microsoft Word. I mean, the last time anyone actually referred to a written manual probably is um, far and you know long, long ago. But there are wikis, Wikipedia type you know, articles. I mean, all of Claris help went from being built into the application to being totally online and searchable. So in a sense, it's very much like your knowledge base, John, where you know you could find things and you can reference it and then get tidbits based on certain things. Um, But we don't build a traditional user manual for VSS. We do do still continue to build traditional user manuals for our plugins. Um, Call it tradition, call it something we still do just because, but yeah, we still build written PDFs for our plugins, but not for VSS. And we, we also subscribe to the idea, if it's so hard that you need a manual to get started, then maybe something's wrong with the software in the way that you built it, you know? Yeah. I don't provide user manuals with my, what I'd probably define as horizontal solutions that are on my database pros.com website. You know, I have a yep. contact manager and there's no, there's no help. It, it should be easy enough to use. Yep. Uh, there's no tech support included. They're just very inexpensive ways to start. And uh, it, it's worked pretty well for me. A few times people are like, you don't offer tech support. Well, yeah, if you want to pay for it, you can get tech support. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Before you go on, John, you touched on a, a subject that we need to talk about, and we almost missed this, is when you're developing a vertical solution as opposed to a custom solution for a single customer, and that customer may be yourself, you have to develop with a completely, utterly different viewpoint. Because a commercial solution, a vertical solution is a totally different animal from a single user solution. And you've got to take that into account from the moment you start developing as a vertical. Yeah. And that's the biggest point of underestimation for a starting developer building their first vertical. And and Michael, you're trying to, um, you're letting us know the emphasis behind how important that is. Well, let me give you a very simple example. You know, you have a solution for a company that does this, but that company might have multiple companies under its own umbrella. So you've got to allow the possibility that there could be multiple companies and you have to then therefore 
allow the user to select which company they're actually working in and with. That's just a very simple fundamental thing, but it's you don't think about things like that. You end up shooting yourself in the foot. For example, one thing that we haven't covered yet would be preferences, right? Something you might not put into your own solution, but when you're developing a vertical market solution, people need to be able to specify how they want to work. And you touched on that on, in, I think, your first case study about options that were turned on and off. But you need to, you need that those were controlled by you by what they purchased. But a lot of times people want their version of the vertical market solution to work this way. And the other people want it to work this way, and you might have a you know a checkbox or a, a you know something to type into. But preferences are something that you'll have to probably get accustomed to, so people can customize the solution to some degree for their own particular business. And and that the other surprise is you'll build a you'll build a solution for a customer, let's say twenty employees, and they're using this thing, they are loving this thing, and it fits their business like a glove. And you have sort of this blind confidence that because it works so well for that customer and because this customer B is in the same exact industry doing the exact same thing, selling the exact same products to the exact same people, you have this blind confidence that this solution is going to work for customer B. But customer B has a totally different way of approaching their business and a total different philosophy on how software should be built. And it's a very big splash of water in the face when you first cross that path and you realize that customer B really doesn't like what customer A has built if in large part. They like the idea behind it, but they really don't like the execution of it. So they want their own way of doing things and put their own stamp on it. So to your point, guys, preferences is one way to bridge that gap between what customer A would want and customer B would want, even though they're selling and doing the same work. It's even as simple as just having their logo in there and their their phone number and their address so that they can, you know, if it's printing invoices, they can have their information on it. It can be as simple as that, but more complex about changing how the program actually works. Yeah, I mean, you, the one thing that is a strong point and always has been with FileMaker is it allows us developers to develop solutions that allow the customer to work the way they want to, rather than being told they have to do it this way. And that's a key part of FileMaker's success. So when you're building a vertical solution, you've literally got to say, okay, well, customer A, customer type A likes to do it this way, and customer B type likes to do it this way. So we've got to allow the customer to work the way they want to. We can't force them, can't say to them, you've got to do it this way. We've got to give them the ability to work the way they want to. Now, there are certain times when you're going to say, look, I understand the way you do business, but have you considered the ramifications of this? And this might be a better solution for you. That's an educational process, but you've still got to let customers work the way they want to and are used to and are familiar with. Right. And with each passing decision, as you build preference after preference after preference, what you'll quickly realize is that you're building in complexity. And for a new customer taking on and considering your vertical, and when you do that first demo and you arrive at the preferences page, and it's three pages long worth of preferences, they get the impression, oh, this is pretty darn complicated. And... The reason they get that impression is because you've had to build so many preferences to do it so many ways. So the moral of that story is you, the owner, the architect, 
need to make those hard choices between what's going to be a preference that you're going to allow customers to have a choice over and what's never going to be a preference because you've had to make the hard architectural decision that we're not going to go there because it makes the product way too complex, way too hard for new users to learn and overwhelming for from a marketing standpoint. Just the perception of having too many choices, too many buttons on the screen, too many layouts, too many this is, too many that's. Yeah, that's that's the the problem with uh, YouTube. If you've ever put a channel up, there are so many options or going to Facebook. There's so many options in there and it scares me. I don't want to see that in a, in a vertical market solution. I want it to be easy and straightforward. Mm-hmm. And so do they. They want it to be easy and straightforward. So and maybe maybe you hide those preferences. I know in a lot of cases when we onboard customers, we don't really expose them to all the nitty gritty of what it takes to set up their file per se. We just sort of do it politely in the background, let them see different things that they might want to choose on their own. Um, and we try to find that happy medium of having it be perceived as a very simple to use you know, piece of software that they will be able to learn in an hour or two. Uh, while at the same time being powerful enough to give them some choices and flexibility. And finding that is one of the toughest things to do when you're architecting these vertical markets, finding that beautiful, happy Goldilocks position. Now, I think something that everybody's going to want to know about, and you touched on it, uh, is registration of your product so that there's no piracy and things like that. That's essentially what you want. That's what I'm referring to making sure that people buy your product and you have a very sophisticated model. I'd like to start off with what if you're just some guy who can't build in uh, an SQL database with a plugin that communicates with it every time you launch a solution. You know, what if you don't have that? Well, in the past, what I've done, and I'm curious what you guys have done, I've done things like uh, build in some random password generators. So I generate passwords for people and put them in the file before I send them out, or sometimes I do it right in the product. At this point right now, I, I just basically have the same password for the file and trust in people's good nature not to pirate it, or just simply I just don't care if they pirate it. But in some of these vertical market solutions where the products are thousands of dollars, you can't afford to have people pirating it. I'm selling $99 solutions. I'm not so so worried about that. But I'm curious what your thoughts are, Mark and Michael, on, on how to protect your investment. Um, and I'd like to hear a lot about whatever you can reveal about how you guys do it at Productive, which is a high-scale, sophisticated method as well. Sure. Michael, do you want to start us off on that? Well, it is a big issue. And what I have done with both of my vertical solutions is I had somebody write a complex algorithm which generated, a, which based on a customer number generated a license code. And they, when they registered the software, it would give them the customer number and they would write call in to me and I would then give them or enter the into the code for them. And, and then if they try to make a clone of it, then that uh, customer number would change obviously, and they would not be able to use the same license code. And if they just gave somebody a copy of it, then it would send a periodic email home saying we've got two copies of this particular solution being registered at these two different addresses. So, but it was a lot of work and the, 
the password generator, I mean, this is a long time ago, and I spent $1,500 having that developed. So it wasn't something that you could just do off the top of your head. It was beyond my ability to program it, for sure. What I, what I did in that category at one point was I made, if I can remember correctly, I made something that generated a random series of values, but key values at certain points during that would be the ones that I actually looked at. I didn't care about everything else. So that everybody would have a different number and it would, it would be based on their username and or their company name and things like that. So certain things had to be right, but certain ones were, were the actual unlocking of the actual database. And, and that worked pretty well for me, but you know, I, I got tired of policing everybody and, and it's, it, it's, uh, and, and I didn't have to is what I finally figured out after a while because I wasn't selling high priced items. But, uh, I think in the case of, of Mark, you have to do this cause you're selling high priced items. Um, you have really no choice but to make it more sophisticated. Well, yes and no. Um, I think you have to protect your software based on how it's deployed and what it's exposed to, how it's sold, who it's being sold to. I, so I think everything is a, on a case-by-case basis. But let me just go through a couple of things that you wanted me to identify. <clears throat> For our plugins, that's something physical that you are going to to touch. You're going to actually have that plugin on a local computer, you're going to install it within FileMaker and it's going to do its thing. In most cases, that's what it's going to be. So to protect something that we don't actually possess, that you actually are going to possess, is a little different than protecting, let's say, a solution that is only available through a hosting provider, such as VSS. In other words, a customer will never be able to physically touch a VSS file at least not the dispatch file or the main file. They will be able to touch the FileMaker Go file, but that file in and of itself is useless unless it can talk to the mothership. So so in the case of plugins, we needed a way to protect the distribution or the unlawful distribution of a plugin. If a pal said, oh, let me email you this plugin, it'll work. That's a little different. And I think you guys have that same situation. We all have that same situation if we're developing a FileMaker solution that's also going to be in the hands of different people if we're trying to protect that. So we'll talk about that in a second. But So for plugins, it's a little straight, more straightforward. The plugin actually is lame and completely useless unless it calls home and says, am I registered? Am I able to be used? Oh, I am? Okay, great. I'll work for you. No problem. So that's how we protect the plugins. And that is a little bit more sophisticated. And most people don't need that level of protection uh, per se. What makes this a little bit more challenging is if you're working with deploying a FileMaker file that you want to have in the hands of people, it's it's kind of hard to also give them full access to the file. At the same time, protect the file. It's like those two are in direct conflict with each other because by the very nature of giving them an open file that they can use and develop with, you're essentially saying, yeah, and you're going to be able to have any protection that I might be able to put in here is not going to work very well. So in those cases, um, such as the case of 123Sync, which is a solution that we used to distribute and you know still work with Laura Bauer and her solution, 123Sync is a solution that syncs uh, FileMaker and QuickBooks. She would deploy a file that was completely open and unlocked, FileMaker file, along with a black box FileMaker file that would be completely locked and encrypted and so forth. The black box would do the magic. The user couldn't touch that, and it would work hand-in-hand with the open file that the user could touch. So it was like a combination delivery 
So it was protected yet still open. And that's how she got around those situations. And that was just another interesting way to deploy things. Um, and then in the case of VSS, um, I, I we don't really have strict uh, protection other than you know the, the password that you can get with the FileMaker file itself, which in and of itself is very you know hard to break, if not impossible. Um, but customers don't have access to the file, so we've got nothing to lose. We've got nothing to really protect because they don't get the file in the first place. They just right. Get access if they to decide the file. not to yep. pay their yearly fees, then you just yeah we just password. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We yeah, stop hosting the file or any number of things. Usually it doesn't get to that, but uh, yeah, we have that pro- power and that that privilege. Then the customer on the, on the other side will say, well, wait a minute, you have my file. So that means you have my data. How do I get my data back if I, you know, things go south or I change businesses or I want to sell the business and I need that data for the next person? So, you know, the promise when you sell that is, yeah, and if you do need your data, here's a way that you can export it on your own or we'll provide you with the data, no problem. You know, and that's the people, the part that people have problems with, like Google and some of these other solutions that are, you know, publicly facing. Can you really get your data? Do you really own your data? Or is it just everything, you know, is it the Wild West? Your data goes up there and you really lose all rights and privileges to it. So those are some of the things you have to consider too when you're building a vertical. You know, and that stretches then into international law. Like, okay, well, if you host your data in another country or you're hosting it for people living in another country and using it in another a whole new series of laws, restrictions, rules, mandates, and considerations need to be taken into effect on over rights, privileges, security, privacy, and that's a whole nother business model, you know. So, in large part, you, there's just so many things to consider on protecting a solution. And then customers will often ask us, "Okay, now wait a minute. I I work in the medical field. I want to deploy a solution in the medical market. Is FileMaker HIPAA compliant?" And we have to say, well, yes and no. And here's the paperwork on that. And actually, FileMaker recently upped their HIPAA compliance statements. And uh, so that's a whole other aspect of, of, of when you're thinking about protecting a vertical market. It's, it's not just protecting the solution so that people don't rip you off. It's protecting the data in the solution so that customers feel comfortable that they can actually use it under the own mandates and restrictions in, in their industry. And again, that's what we're going way back to the beginning of the podcast. Why do some people deploy with on desktop computers with an on-premises server versus those that are happily going in the cloud with WebDirect? And it simply could be the way they want to protect and host their data. That was a long-winded answer. Yeah. No, no, no. It was, it was brilliant. I was, I was just sitting there going, wow, that's, that's, that's experience right there talking and i think if 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 you don't understand everything we send during the said during this podcast the one thing you should come out of this is realizing that creating a vertical market solution requires a lot of crossing of t's a lot of dotting dotting of the i's you've got to do a lot of thinking about what you need to do how to deploy it how what kind of infrastructure you need how you sell it there's so many things you really need to write yourself a business plan just so you can get your thoughts organized. Correct. And what I find is that a lot of these vertical markets, you know, they make it look easy. Yeah, they're selling in droves. They have beautiful websites, beautiful offerings, beautiful solutions. 
And what I've come to learn in interviewing the few that I've done recently and the ones that I've known about in the past is that in nearly every case, with the exception of maybe Happy Software, they have a strategic partnership with a FileMaker developer. They simply do. They just can't or don't want to do it on their own. Or, you know, it's the amount of effort and expense and, and expertise required. They, so they buy it. They buy it. So um, in, in all the cases I mentioned today, they have one or more FileMaker developers in the community helping them along the way, either to program, to deploy, to develop, to host, or to just consult. And if you're the FileMaker developer, it's the opposite. You just need to swap, switch it up. You need an mm -hmm. industry expert. Yep, exactly. Or exactly. do what Happy and Software did and be both or learn or learn the both. one. And it takes a while for them to do that. So, yeah, yeah. You can determine to graduate to the point where you're going to be able to sell it as well as, you know, produce it. Or you can partner with somebody who can bridge the gap. But I will go to the grave saying you need you need both. Right. You, you, it's got to be a beautiful marriage of both disciplines. And I'll give you a simple example. Like I decided that I wanted to be a cook a long time ago. Not a chef, but just, you know, a good home cook. And I like to share my recipes. And I have that knowledge of cooking. And I have that knowledge of FileMaker to put together a website that allows you to get those recipes. I'm, I'm able to, to put together the blog software with FileMaker and things like that. So that doesn't always happen. But you've got to realize that's an important aspect. You need to know both sides of how to market and sell and, and develop a vertical market solution. Don't go into it blindly. And if that's one thing we can do is warn you, vertical market solutions, you can make a lot of money and it may be very tempting, but make sure you're prepared. Yeah. I was going to say the other thing is that what you just said is very true, John, but it's also the same is true about be becoming a professional developer like you and I are, where we're not working for a company, we're working for a for ourselves, we've not only got to got to have the technical skill, we've got to know how to sell, we've got to know how to market, we've got to know how to network, we've got to all of these skills that we have to have to be able to do it on our own. And those same rules apply to vertical market solutions. You've got to have multiple skills in multiple disciplines, and they're not easy to to get. Nope. And they're not necessarily free either. I mean, it's either going to take time and money or both. And, and not to scare everybody to say, you know, don't even try because there is great rewards. There are great lights at the end of the tunnel. Um, and let me give you a, a couple of real key things to keep in mind that what makes vertical special. What makes them special is that once you build something for an industry, it's very easy to target market that industry because you now have defined keywords such as, let's say, insurance or wh whatever those keywords are, you now have a marketplace to go to. You have trade shows and trade sites and websites and blogs and all of that stuff, all that infrastructure usually typically exists. So you have this wonderful platform, this marketing platform you can, can, can go to versus, ah, we've built... Um, an invoicing system, let's say, or our core CRM is an example of where it's very hard to market our core CRM because it's a CRM. It does it fits everybody, but in a sense, it fits nobody specifically. So 
magic point number one, vertical markets, once you make them, finding a home for them is easier than finding a home in a horizontal solution by far. And then the second magic thing that happens is that once it takes off, once you get those key people using it, you'll find that it sells itself. It literally just folds up on itself and it starts to snowball. Like this person is using it. So now that person's going to use it. And it's like word of mouth happens. It becomes a household name. And before you know it, you're taking calls on people just saying, hey, I want to buy your stuff. Before you even have to lift a finger to try to pedal it like you normally would with maybe a regular solution that you're trying to get a new customer to purchase. So in a sense, it becomes easier over time. But boy, what a slog it is getting started. Yeah. One example, we we mentioned Happy Software and we mentioned them as one of the success stories or the original vertical market success story. And I don't think we told the whole story because uh, Joe, I always get Joe and James, Jim or Joe. Yeah. Uh, they, he, right. he actually sold it, which you mentioned, but he retired. Yep. From selling it. I mean, he gallivants around the, the world right now. Um, last time I heard he was in Japan. Sure. So so that's right. the big carrot. You know, you can make it big. Not everybody's going to. You can also, you know, make it kind of big and make a good living on it. But also there's a lot of people out there. Be prepared. If you want to be successful, be prepared. Yeah. Which brings me to my third point is that when you have a vertical and you've got customers, you've got regular income, you now have a tangible asset that becomes highly valuable to sell to another company, another software company interested in expanding their uh, product offerings. And, and that's exactly what happened to Joe. He was purchased by a larger company who already did the so- same sort of thing, but they wanted to expand their customers. So they bought happy software, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And it was measured in the millions in terms of you know the kind of um, sale it was worth. Um, and you'll talk to any expert who buys and sells businesses, and they will always tell you the same thing. If you can have a business that has recurring income with customers of a known value, with regular cash coming in, and sort of a guarantee that they're not going to leave you either because they're contractually obligated or because they've been with you for years, that business will fetch three, four, five more times money to a buyer than a business that's saying, well, I've got 50 customers and you know, I want to sell my business. Sometimes it's harder to sell those, those types of businesses, but product-based vertical market businesses are very attractive to the marketplace of people buying businesses. The one thing that I want to interject into that um, observation, the Mark, is also one of the reasons why FileMaker has become so valuable to businesses because what it does is it provides if it's properly developed and designed it provides businesses a way of establishing and proving their net worth of their business when they come to sell and when you can say to a company who's looking to buy you out here's all of our business here you are you can run these reports you can look at all this information you can see what we're doing in volume you can see where we're selling what we're selling when we sell it all of this stuff if that information is all in one place that somebody who's interested in buying you could go through and run the reports and see the information your business is automatically worth a much more much more money than if you had to hunt around and put together spreadsheets and profit and loss statements and all of that stuff because you're pro- you can prove the value of your business. 
So it's not only for vertical market solutions, it's for, you know, properly developed business software that makes companies A, more efficient and B, more valuable when they come to sell. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, guys. Far more than uh, I expected it to be, but really good. I'm Michael Rashad, and I'm signing off. My name is John Mark Osborne, and I'm signing off too, and I couldn't agree with what Michael said. I, I think this podcast turned into so much more than I thought it could be when, I, when we started thinking about it uh, almost a year ago. Uh, that's how long it took us to get it together. Uh, so I think it turned out really great. Uh, please leave comments. And thanks to our guest, Mark La Rochelle, who really has a lot of experience in this cat- category and made this podcast what it is. Thanks, guys. It's always a pleasure uh, talking to you guys. I learned so much on every one of these podcasts, and I learned a lot about verticals, even more than I thought I knew just in preparing for it. So uh, it's been a, a topic that's close to my heart and something that I'm deeply interested in. So thanks for having uh, having this episode today. Yep. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please write in. We'd love to hear from you. Take care. I'm Margaret Rashad. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Fireside Filemaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Rashad. We'd love to hear what you think, so please email us at info at firesidefilemaker.com. That's info at firesidefilemaker.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.